This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I help people get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that starts with a meat only elimination diet for gut healing. Okay, so I'm excited. Today, I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. We talked a lot about chronic inflammatory response syndrome. This interview gets pretty technical. So if you haven't checked out my intro to Sears, I highly recommend checking that video first. I will put that in the show notes. Dr. Shoemaker is the founder of the Chronic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, and he can tell you a lot about it more in our interview. He is a practicing physician, and now he works towards getting doctors and practitioners certified in his SERS protocol. Everything he shares is evidence based. There is the scientific approach to everything he does, and it's very well laid out, and the material is so profound. And it's very, very easy to follow once you get past a lot of the acronyms. If you are not able to figure out why you are not getting better fully on a meat only diet, I highly recommend listening to this interview and then going back and looking into the SIRS protocol more. All right, let's get right into this discussion. Hi, Dr. Shoemaker. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've been doing so much research into your work and A lot of the information you've put out there and for free. So, thank you so much for all the work you've contributed to the wellness space. I'm so excited for my community to learn about you. If you don't mind introducing yourself to those that are listening and watching, my name is Rich Shoemaker. I am a family practitioner by trade. I started my practice in National Health Service Corps in Pocomoke, Maryland, between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean, the medically served area. And I've, I've been here ever since. I love it. Uh, my life changed from being an outpatient rural family practice physician in 1996 when there was an outbreak of mysterious illness that first affected fish and caused lesions and sores on fish and killed fish, but then started making the watermen sick. Watermen are people that harvest fish. And who, who had ever seen this illness before? We've been, they didn't have a name for it. You know, ominous 
tones coming from North Carolina that fisteria, dinoflagellates, like an algae, was active that had never been known to be active before. As it turns out, fisteria has been in the Chesapeake Bay since at least the 1900s. Uh, and it's been making people sick for a very long period of time. But it wasn't until there were environmental disturbances, not nutrients, no, that's what they said, but it was uh, actually fungicides, of all things, that altered the life cycle of this organism that pushed it from being benign, feeding along the bottom of the rivers, into being aggressive uh, with looking for a mate. So feeding and breeding in, in the motile phase, that's when the organism made a toxin, which is a pheromone, to attract other fisterias in the native place. What would have happened is if you had exposure to water or water droplets where there was active blooms of fisteria, you could acquire a toxin-mediated illness, the first one like this recorded in U.S. history. And then how did that start being um, affecting uh, people, and how did you start seeing it in your practice? Well, these are my friends. These are, these are people I saw in Walmart. And they look at me and say, how come you can't figure this out? What's wrong with you? And so I started doing everything I was trained to do. My education at Duke University, I thought was pretty good. But I couldn't find any, any, any clues. And medications that I used, gassed, didn't work and didn't give up. There's something about this illness. It was very strange. And coincidentally, maybe by being in the right place at the right time, a young lady came in who had horrible secretory diarrhea. And remember, secretory diarrhea is that kind of diarrhea you get when you haven't had anything to eat. It just happens. So it means it's a disease of the skin, of the, of the, of the, of the bowel itself. Well, good old family practice docs, especially rural docs, know all about cholestyramine. Uh, it's, it's constipating agent. It's great for stopping secretory diarrhea. So what would you do? I bet you'd give somebody cholestyramine. That's what I did. And lo and behold, the diarrhea went away. Well, what a surprise. What a surprise. But the memory came back, and the cough stopped, the muscle aches stopped, and the neurologic things, and the brain started working. What in the world? How could an unabsorbed anion binding resin call uh, a cholesterol drug actually make all this difference in strange symptoms that we had no physiology? We had no clue. But armed with the fact I can make people better, in the end, that's that's some of what people wanted was to feel better. But I wanted to know what went on, and I spent the next 25 years of my life trying to unravel the puzzles, and we've gotten all the way to actinomycetes, which I hope we'll talk about today. Okay. Talking a little bit about SIRS or this chronic inflammatory response syndrome, um, you mentioned like molecular hypometabolism, um, the Warburg effect, and even how our bodies process different macronutrients. Can you talk about, you know, just taking a step back, how how does basically these biotoxins that we are either getting from fish, from water damaged buildings, how does this impact the inflammatory response in our systems? The focus from 1997 on was on inflammation. Mm -hmm. The blood tests, the proteomics we used were all proteins having to do with inflammation. It wasn't until uh, 2015 where Jimmy Ryan comes into play. Dr. Ryan is a molecular biologist, a transcriptomist. He looks at differential gene activation as part of his daily life. He published a paper with me, and we've been doing this since 2011. But by 2015, we published a paper on Ciguatera because we felt if we took an explosive finding that Dr. Ryan had of changes in molecular biology caused by exposure to these biotoxins, 
you know, if we if we started right out with with water damage buildings, that's going to be too controversial on, on its own own end. And you know, who would listen to more controversy? So we chose Ciguatera that nobody's ever heard of, and yet it has all the parameters that go with a biotoxic illness exposure followed by inflammatory changes. But then we saw changes in differential gene activation, and wow, yeah. was that a big deal? Holy cow! Right now, if you think about transcriptomics, you're thinking about maybe vascular disease and, and, and cancer. Well, we're not thinking about chronic fatigue illnesses. Uh, there's been a few other people doing real work like we're doing. But by looking at the mechanisms of changes in messenger RNA, sounds like COVID might have something to do with this, doesn't it? Well, it does. But specifically, we added the metabolic and the nutritional aspects to the inflammation which was a missing link. It wasn't until 2021 that the metabolism paper was, was published looking at metabolic complications associated with and related to development of inflammation followed by exposure. And we now know that some of these little small uh, molecular pro compounds affect production of protein by ribosomes. Ribosomes are one of the organelles inside of a cell. There's a million of them. They do a lot of good things, but they will be a source of attachment of the code, three amino acids, for a protein, so initiation of protein synthesis, followed by adding an amino acid for each codon, three amino acids, uh, three three, three genes for one one amino acid. We elongate the protein until we're ready to terminate it, and then termination comes. So this mechanism sounds disarmingly simple, and yet... There is, between the large and small ribosomal subunits, a structure called the sarsen-ricin loop. Now, Judy, I'm sure you've, you've heard of the sarsen-ricin loop. Uh, the uh, the uh, ricin poison is a plant toxin. Most people have heard of that. But this is an evolutionarily conserved structure that has a, a nucleoside 15 and adenosine moiety that can be removed by a ribotoxin, these very small molecular weight things, and poison ribosomes. In the worst case, the poisoning can cause death, but we know that this poisoning can also be initiated by bacteria. There are 6,000 organisms identified in the literature that have a toxin, antitoxin system. So they can slow down the host cell or their cell at will and then start it back up. So this is a survival mechanism, and it's fascinating. The more you get into it, how can such a structure that, that, that walnut trees have and, and chimpanzees have and paramecians have, they're all the same. My goodness, look at all the metabolic pathways we have, the nutritional pathways. They're all the same. Evolutionary conservation, we are looking at a fundamental disruption of biology, and to make it worse, we have ribosomes in mitochondria. Now, I've heard a lot of noise, pardon my French, about mitochondrial function. And most people don't realize that of the 1,000 genes that started out to be mitochondrial, there's only 37 left in the mitochondria. The rest have migrated to the nucleus, where they're called nuclear-encoded mitochondrial genes. And there, they're subject to regulation by transcription factors. So here we have biotoxins, ribotoxins, controlling protein synthesis, and we also have mechanisms to control energy production by mitochondria. 
Now, it gets worse than that because there are specific conserved uh, moieties that are produced by these little tiny uh, organisms, and the worst ones are, are fungi. Mycotoxins have a reputation for causing the problem, but they don't deserve it. The zervin is, is actinobacteria or actinomycetes. <clears throat> these organisms are filamentous bacteria, and there's thousands of them. They are the biggest genus of all in, in bacteria. They make 20,000 different compounds. And if you want an antibiotic, ask actinobacteria to make it for you. They will. If you want to disrupt uh, metabolism and knock out in, in the mitochondrial matrix, complex one, well, make some pyrocyanate. Actinobacteria will do that, which will knock out ATP production. How about oligomycin, another compound knocking out complex three, another one of the mitochondrial functions. How about giving somebody a valinomycin, which is a, a mitochondrial toxin that blocks the entry of pyruvate from the cytoplasm across the outer mitochondrial membrane to get into the mitochondrial matrix, and there it can be made into energy ATP with ATPases or cyclooxygenase, the electron transport chain. But what if that opening, that pore, that voltage-dependent anion channel is closed by valenomycin? What if it's closed by, by tubulin A4A or tubulin BB1? Will there be pyruvate delivery to the inside of the mitochondria? No! No! You know, what's, what, what's, what's the pyruvate going to do? As practitioners, we think that it's the diet and we are eating the wrong foods that are causing us to have low energy. But a lot of times it can be at this molecular level that we are not even looking at. So part of the thing that I looked at with Sears is that as a root cause, it could be a chronic inflammatory response syndrome but we are looking as practitioners on about the gut or adrenal dysfunction or some imbalance, but really the it's a more deeper root cause like chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And I just really wanted to dive into that of how people can af get affected by some type of biotoxin. And maybe we can define that and then how, how that then starts affecting our symptoms and how um, even if we have like a genetic haplotype that we are more susceptible to these, I guess, exposures and toxins. There are over 420 known uh, molecular weight, small molecular weight compounds that disrupt protein synthesis and, and mitochondrial function. So technically, there's a lot of biotoxins and right. many are made by uh, organisms like actinos. Many are made by mycotoxins, but dinoflagellates can make them, spirochetes can make them, AP complexans can make them. It turns out they're one of the most common sources of cell-to-cell -cell interaction that there is. Now, if we look at a SIRS, a chronic inflammatory response syndrome, acquired following most commonly exposure to the interior environment of a water-damaged building that has water intrusion, followed by absence of dry out over 48 hours, in which there will be uh, accelerated growth or accentuated growth of fungi, actinobacteria, of which mycobacteria are one, or regular gram-negative rods, uh, gram-positive cocci are also a part, including, uh, also including, excuse me, inflammagens made by, hemo including hemolysins, um, spirocyclic drymanes, and the list goes on. These illnesses 
cause a multi-system, multi-symptom illness that has at least 25 separate published peer-reviewed biomarkers that define the illness as opposed to chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia or deconditioning where we don't have any biomarkers, even after all these years. With SIRS, we do. So that if we look at a biotoxin, it is a, it is a compound made by a living creature. That means there's, there's going to be DNA transcription to get to the biotoxin production, whether it's a fungus or an actinobacteria or not. But specifically, what we're looking at is that a mold is not a biotoxin. Molds can make biotoxins. Right. Molds cannot make biotoxins as well. There must be an environmental signal for the mold to, to change. Now, the most common signal is production of peroxidases by plants to prevent molds from predating on plants. So this idea that biotoxins are defensive agents is wrongheaded. That's just not the way it is. These compounds are very expensive to make molecularly. They're, they're, they're energy rich, they're energy dense, and they take a long time to be made. So they're not made frivolously. And so as far as biowarfare, no. But are they a natural selection item? Yes. So is this fascinating in, in how the complexity keeps on going? Yes. Now, I did want to caution you in some of your questions, and I was, I was very pleased with your questions. Good job. Um, you were focusing a little more than I thought indicated on adrenal function. And we can hopefully get to that. As far as thyroid problems, no. Uh, Hashimoto's has nothing to do with this, and hypothyroidism has nothing to do with this. It's a common, common assumption that people make, but the data just don't support that. When we're looking at how blood handles sugar, we're really looking at the second phase, and that's the metabolic phase. If we look at the metabolic complications that come along with SIRS, you're going to find them. And one of the first things we find is a widened anion gap. Now, in your patient clientele, do you measure a comprehensive metabolic profile? Of course you do. So you measure an anion gap every time you see a patient. Have you noticed what the anion gaps usually are in SIRS? They're widened more than 12, probably 20, 22 along the way. And this widening of the anion gap comes from excessive production of lactic acid. Because remember my tantalizing question for you, which I you're nodding your answer and you already knew, about what happens to pyruvate if it can't be metabolized by, by mitochondria, it'll be broken down into lactic acid and exported against the gradient and sent outside the cell. So you only get two ATP, but you get extra metabolic production of acids, and metabolic acidosis leads to additional complications, and we published this uh, in, in 2021, uh, reduction of T regulatory cell receptors, really bad things happening, autoimmunity, oh my, T reg cells, here we go. How about inflammation in tissue? Yep, there you go. Pulmonary hypertension comes directly out of metabolic acidosis. And how many people have you ordered a stress echo in recently because they are dyspneic or short of breath or you thought they might have coronary disease? If your answer is, isn't 10 last week, you weren't busy enough. You missed them. But specifically, this is a very new element, but the big deal. And here's where the real issue comes is the brain injury. You can have increased numbers of gray matter nuclear atrophy. You can have atrophy of cortical gray. You can have enlargement of, uh, of uh, inferior lateral and then superior lateral ventricle. Now, you were focusing on hippocampus. Do you know the main source 
of absence of restorative protein production by a hippocampus that's under siege, where that comes from? Anisomycin. Okay. All right. And what is anisomycin? It's a biotoxin made by actinobacteria. So all these folks looking at Alzheimer's disease, thinking about hippocampus, and in your questions, do you have some of that? What really we should be asking is, is there anisomycin, which we can show, present in these people? Because actinobacteria on the skin are able to release compounds through what we call extracellular vesicles to carry toxins, DNA, RNA, from the skin, the deep the poor parenchyma of the skin, sweat glands, oil glands, into vesicles that then get distributed through the body and create an endogenous inflammatory event. Now, how about that? We've gotten from needed exposure being outside the skin to now exposure inside the skin. Fascinating. Let, let me take a step back. So let's say I get a client exposed to water damage building or some type of maybe mycotoxin from possible mold. And so let's say then they have maybe one of the genetic haplotypes that you mentioned where the switch off from the innate immune system to the um, adaptive is not as seamless. And so then their their genetic portion of this gets activated And now they're in this kind of chronic inflammatory state where the inflammation is on because of a biotoxin exposure, but they are not getting better. And so as they're constantly in this cycle of inflammation, the brain starts in a very simplistic term, starts to get on fire. So the hippocampus, the cortisol within the brain starts lighting up and essentially the body's in full inflammation. And then so one of the hormones um, uh, in that whole process is the melanocyte stimulating hormone or the MSH will start decreasing so that the body will not, the brain won't be as inflamed. And then once that starts happening, physical issues start happening related to the gut, related to adrenal function. If I'm not feeling well, how do I know that it's chronic inflammatory response syndrome? And how do I get better? What are the steps through that all to understand that maybe my case of not getting better is not necessarily that my dietary parts need a change, but rather it's stemming from the brain. Hey guys, just to let you know, my carnivore cure book is back in stock for nine months. It was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today. That has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. I want to go back to this question about brain on fire. Okay. There's a wonderful poem by Carl Sandburg. Uh, some say the world will die in fire. Some say it'll die in ice. Ice is nice. And I, I, I butchered the poem. But I want to, want to hesitate to call this on fire. Okay. Inflammation makes you think on fire. Yes. When you have metabolic injury and you have metabolic acidosis and you have failure of ability to make ATP, the problem is not on fire. It's on ice. Okay. Fair enough. Right. Think think, think about a sodium potassium pump in the brain and there's no fuel to fill it. Is that on fire or is it slowed down? It's slowed down. It's diminished. You can't reset the neurons. So what happens to the neurons and, and nuclei is they start to, to dry up. They die. 
And then we start getting brain fog. Brain injuries found in 95% of patients with SIRS. But specifically, all the elements that you mentioned was almost a rehash. The very first biomarker was HLA, the immune response genes indicator. <clears throat> My question was, how come of the 10 people who got Fisteria, excuse me, of the seven people who got Fisteria in a group of 10 swimming at Williams Point in 1996, how come seven got sick and three didn't? Well, if you're on the Eastern Shore, you know somebody was smoking, you know somebody was drinking, you know somebody was not taking care of himself. This is the Eastern Shore. We, we have a good time here. But what was it? Was it diabetes? Was it family history? What was it? It was HLA, immune response genes involved in antigen presentation. My God, you could have a toxin that you're exposed to and you couldn't make an immune response to it. Now, you mentioned adaptive immunity. That means there's, there's an antibody made. <clears throat> but if you have an antigen-presenting cell or a dendritic cell, it will take a receptor bound to a toxin and it will internalize it with an HLA marker, process it, and send it to the other side of the cell, figuratively, and present it to a naive T cell that says, okay, take this nice tasty morsel and show it to a B cell and make an antibody. When an IUT cell says, sorry, you don't have the password. You, you, can't, you can't log in. What do you mean I can't log in? I can't do the show. Okay, where's the login? Defective antigen presentations and characteristics. And you should not be surprised the questions that we get about COVID shots. Will I get a COVID shot if I have defective antibody? How about if I got multiple myeloma? Will I have defective antigen presentation? Oh, yeah, we can go on that for another show. But specifically, what we're looking at is that there are changes in regulation of inflammation, and the inflammatory response lowers MSH. MSH is a regulatory neuropeptide made most commonly in the hypothalamus, communicating through the portal system with the pituitary. But once you lose MSH in one of your questions, you almost never remake it. It is just that that bad. So this this these illnesses can be chronic. We don't use a cure word unless MSH or a substitute VIP is used to make the correction. There are other peptides that are being used. Don't know if they have the same track record. You can't assume that BPC is going to work or thymosin uh, one delta is going to work. You cannot make that assumption. You need the data. You do the experiment. Don't guess. Whatever you do, don't guess. But specifically, we talked about HLA and MSH. You had a question. Go ahead. Your protocol and all the research you've done is very, very backed by science and it's very easy to follow. So everyone that goes through your certification program, you know, there's all these steps prior to diagnosing someone with SIRS and then how they can, I guess, go through these goalposts of are they getting better after, for example, the cholesterol? I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my practice. So I work with a lot of clients that have hormonal issues, lost your period, um, just unwell, doing every single diet, eating the cleanest foods. So then they go on, they work with me and they do a meat only elimination diet just to get to basics of, is it a plant toxin? Is it anti-nutrients, something like gluten or lectins? And, And for a lot of people, that is the enough of a change so that they start feeling better. But then I have a population of people that no matter what I do, Sure, we get the gut better. They do a stool test and their markers look better, but then they start getting sick again. And there's just a population of people that no matter how clean the meat is, no matter how much variety of meats and nutrient density they eat, they're not 
fully better. And so then I stumbled upon your work and I got a few people to do the SERS testing. So the MMP9, the the MSH TGF beta one, and then the- Time out, time out, before you go too far. What you are describing is one of the lectures I gave years ago in Pittsburgh on the difference between Hygieia and Panacea. You are advocating hygienic measures of clean food and exercise and perhaps meditation and you know good good thoughts and all that. And I'm going to look and say, that's fine. That'll help you feel better if you don't have an inflammatory or metabolic disease because there you need panacea. And I went into Escapolis and it was great fun. I think I was the only person who enjoyed the lecture, but specifically the issue is that Hygieia is not the goddess to fix SIRS. Panacea, her sister is. Isolde, the mother, kept those very separate. But specifically, you are going through the different parameters. And when people certify, they will make sure that they can write an essay of what is the Shoemaker Protocol accurately, correctly in the English language. And that's, so that's what you see. It's not their protocol, quite frankly. It's the surviving mold protocol. Uh, and you know, there, there are folks that argue with me, says, I have no need for a protocol. I individualize everything. I said, well, you never will have a protocol then to fix 4 million people. And that's, that's the critical issue. This is a common illness. We see it with 95% likelihood, the same things present all the time. It's reproducibly reliable. Therefore, people who were in South Africa or in the UK or in Australia or in Kansas can use the same protocol that I'm talking, you're talking about today with the same expected success rates. Now, success rates, that was another one of your good questions. Well, what are we going to do? If you have defined the illness, it meets the case definition. The case definition was encoded by the USGA oh, in 2008. My case definition in 2003 kind of went bye-bye. But when the government says, this is what the illness is, exposure to water damage building potential. Symptoms the same as seen in published peer-reviewed literature. Labs the same as seen in published peer-reviewed literature. And responsive objective parameters not subjective parameters, objective parameters. Right. We want to have things that are going to be the same from a lab uh, in Brisbane like, like they are in Kansas City. And yeah. So the whole key issue is that reproducibly reliable biomarkers, and we haven't even talked about the brain and neurocon, but I'll let you go on. You're doing a great job. There were some clients that I've worked with long enough now where as I learned more about your protocol I had some people test and they all tested positive. So some of them have the haplotype. Some of them have just the mold specific one. You know, I used your, um, I guess the Rosetta Stone. Yay. Yeah, The Rosetta Stone. Thank you. And no so- substitutes. Use the Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you see what happens on the internet. Oh my God. And they have, you know, they have all the markers you indicated. So low MSH, um, high TGF beta one, high MMP nine. And, and then they have all the symptomology. They failed the VCS test. And for these people, diet wasn't enough, like you said, and lifestyle. And they did all this work. And it was, we need to basically get to the root cause of lowering the inflammation in, in the brain and the, just the overactive immune response. And that's where I think your protocol is so powerful. And so my guess is within the population of people that are trying to do a meat only diet and an elimination diet to get better. My guess is the SERS population. I know um, from the content I've read of yours that 
it may affect 24% or maybe 40 million. But I think within the carnivore meat only community, my guess is it's a lot higher, just because, again, people are willing to do meat only to feel better. And initially, a lot of them do because they remove certain foods. But over time, their symptoms start coming back. And that's when I, I wonder how many people are actually suffering from chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Let's add a couple more biomarkers. We, we, we started talking a little bit uh, about the Warburg effect and production of lactic acid from pyruvate. If we have another compound, insulin receptor substrate 2, this is a compound that has many downstream effects. So AKT and mTOR all have a lot to do with IRS2. But IRS2 opens GLUT1 and GLUT4, the pathways that let glucose come into the cell. Mm-hmm. So if you have this increase in IRS2, you'll have an increase in openings to let in sugar. Okay. And if you let in extra sugar, whether it's a meat-based diet or not, you're going to be getting more uh, carbohydrate having an effect because glycolysis will be activated. GAP-DH is one of the genes that we look at in, in insulin resistance, what we look at. And what we're trying to say is what happens if we open the gates of hell, that being GLUT1 and GLUT4, flood the cell with glucose, which would be broken down to pyruvate if GAP-DH is doing fine, mm-hmm. if we're not looking at, this, at the biosynthetic pathway, creating proliferative physiology, we will induce the metabolic complications that go with inflammation. And inflammation feeds on metabolism. Metabolism feeds on inflammation. I can't tell now which comes first, chickens, eggs. Well, let's see, chickens are meat-based, eggs are not. But the issue is that if we go one way with nutrition and ignore IRS2 and ignore proliferative physiology, we're ignoring the whole reason that people stay physically ill because they don't make protein the way they should. They don't metabolize glucose the way they should. And if we don't fix that, we don't fix the patient. Yes, I agree. So, so maybe we can touch upon, you know, if, if I feel that that's me and I'm listening to this and watching this and I feel maybe I'm suffering from SIRS, how do I, where do I get started? Do I start doing the vision test? Do I get my blood work tested? Do I do some of the imaging you were mentioning? How should I get started if I think that I may be suffering from SIRS? The answer is simple. Do you meet the case definition? If you don't meet the case definition, don't waste your time. But if you do meet the case definition, then go out full blast. Now, the difference now compared to 2014 Mm -hmm. is that we can use gene activation as a single test, test called Genie. We've done over nearly 2,000 of these. We can stratify symptoms by objective parameters of gene activation. We can manipulate gene activation to manipulate disease. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. People dreamed about that back in 2002, 2003, when they're doing the Human Genome Project. Wouldn't it be nice if you could control gene activation? Well, we can, and we do. And this is the whole mechanism. If you start stratifying by stage of genie, you know what the next steps are. Don't go to VIP, step three, until you finish step two, which is the 11 steps of my protocol. And certainly, if you don't have molecular hypermetabolism, which genie will show, then maybe you should be thinking of TH17 Treg imbalance, Mm -hmm. which looks like SIRS, but it's not SIRS. Jeannie will tell you that same reason yourself. But we can come up with an array to say, is my problem mycotoxins? 7% of um, SIRS patients will have that, 7%, not 70, 7. Is it endotoxins? 28% will have endotoxins. These are from gram-negative rods. 
and 42% will have actinobacteria. We used to call them actinomycetes, now we call them actinobacteria. Some will have both because it doesn't, numbers don't add up to 100%. But specifically, we're looking at how can you tell if you're exposed? Well, fortunately, we have a couple of labs. Mycometrics in New Jersey will do some of the tests, Envirobiomics, and I have no relations to any of these labs. There's no conflict of interest. Envirobiomics in San Antonio is, is, is more complete because they've been kind of catering to this population. But specifically, if you want to know if you've got actinobacteria, you can find actinobacteria in dust. Mm -hmm. So what I would do if you meet the case definition and your visual contrast sensitivity is positive, those symptoms rosters will have eight of 13 clusters and VCS, you have a 98.5% chance of having a SIRS. That's adding false positive and adding false negative to get 1.5%. So this is incredibly accurate, but it doesn't tell you the mechanism that the illness comes. The next step is the, is the mechanism of the illness. That's where you would do a dust collection looking for filamentous fungi, molds. That's where you'd be looking for filamentous bacteria, actinobacteria. That's when you're looking for gram-negative rods. And these, these organisms are going to be found in different ecological situations. Mm -hmm. So we want to know what's there. Next, we want to know what's the water content of the environment because the activity of water gives us this number. It's upgraded up to 100%. If you're 90 to 100%, that's why you find water-loving fungi and actinos and, and endotoxins. If you're 80 to 90, they're less water-loving, but actinos are there, but you don't find actino, uh, endos. And then, you, then you've got the dry organisms, the, the zerophilic, XCRO philic, they're going to be 55 to 65 to 70%. There you won't find filamentous bacteria very often. You will find actinos, but you won't find endotoxins. So what we've done in two paragraphs is we've defined the case definition. We've defined a marker that's biologically reliable, has been reproducibly published around the world. We've defined the habitat and the ecology what are you up against? Your work is almost done because now you just need to clear out the ecology right. because removal from exposure and you need to stop the circulation of ongoing biotoxins that are going to be going from gut to blood, gut to blood, gut to blood, out through the liver, acting back into the gut. And then you're going to finally show that BCS is the first marker together with the 11 steps you need to do that says that I'm better and then I'm cured. How about that? Yeah, I mean, it seems so promising. Um, and, you know, one of the questions was, why why don't most people just know about this and treat this way? I know a lot of people are incorrectly diagnosed with um, MS sometimes when it can actually right. be a SERS issue. Right. The risk of cynicism and the risk of throwing rocks at other people gets goes through the roof when someone says, how come people don't read? Well, the issue is that when you have 15 minutes or 10 minutes and you've got 40 people to see in a day, and then you've got the insurance paperwork to do, right. and you're going to get paid less than what you wanted to get paid. What, what time is there for learned providers to read new things? Because remember, it wasn't until 1985 that TNF was first identified and wasn't until 1995 that TGF beta one was identified. This is a relatively new interest, new illness with new biomarkers. And heaven forbid that the five minutes of teaching that I got in medical school on actinomycetes of lumpy, bumpy jaw and sulfur granules would actually be saying 
that these compounds or these organisms make little, little conveyors that are extracellular vesicles. Who even knew that gram-positive organisms made extracellular vesicles until 1998? So, I mean, a lot of this is because it's new. Right. Cynically, it's because it takes too much time. I, I can tell you jokes, but where do you hide the where do you where do you hide the hundred dollar bill from the internist? Yeah, okay, okay. But there also has been some institutional play. The uh, federal government has kind of end all and be all, like I told you, the 2008 USGAO uh, case definition, Trump mine. Well, what does the CDC do? Nothing of the sort. CDC said nothing at all. It might be an allergy. Maybe it's, it's a psychological thing. If you go to England, it's, oh, yeah. it's psychological. But at the same time, here are the data published and peer-reviewed. We have 45 papers published, 14 books published, treated thousands of patients. How come people aren't listening? Well, in one deposition, when I did legal testimony, I was called the most dangerous man in America. Because if people listen to me, I would not be putting up with unsafe homes. There was uh, an article of yesterday about this historically black universities and colleges. And uh, Howard University had people sleeping in tents outside their dorms because their dorms were so bad. University of North Carolina had the same problem two weeks ago. Stacy dorm where I went in high school for a course to take was moldy as can be. I didn't know anything about it. But you're gonna find 50 plus percent of inhabited buildings in the US are water damaged. And if 45% of those people, of those, those buildings make people sick, that's a real big number. So right. 40 million that you mentioned, that is an underestimate of who is sickened with a treatable illness. Come on, people, read. It's all published. Everything I do is published and peer-reviewed. I'm not making up, you know, Eye of Newt and uh, uh, bubble, 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 toil and trouble. You know, this, this is all good science. It's all published. Of the testing that I've done on my clients, there was one person that um, had the Marcones in the nose, but, um, and had high, the TGF beta one and the low MSH, but they didn't have any of the haplotypes. It is a marker of susceptibility, not a guarantee of illness. Okay. So 95% of people will follow the Rosetta Stone protocols. But if I've got a 15651 with MS susceptibility and Lyme susceptibility, they can get sickened if MSH is low just by itself, or they can get sickened if they develop molecular hypometabolism. Mm. This, this, this holy grail, I'm telling you, the genes is where, where the action is or where it's at, baby. The issue is that we now know that HLA is a good guidepost and it's wonderful for doing family planning. For example, if a mom is 4353 and dad's 11352B, well, I mean, 50-50 chance that each one of their children is going to have one or the other, or you know, another percentage chance is going to have both. So would you want to breed? Interestingly, of the people that get divorced, lack of coherence of HLA markers is the most common predictor. 70% of people that don't have the same HLA get divorced. 70%. That is of the so people who share HLA, less than 25% get divorced, just for your fun and education today. <laughs> So can you talk a little bit about how these markers being imbalanced, um, having SIRS affects our gut and why leaky gut is not just because of some diet that you're, uh, you're following. That's not ideal. Like let's say eating too much gluten, for example, and also how 
even our um, endocrine system can be affected by like the MSH being really low. Let's take the gut first. Okay. James Lipton uh, and Anna Catania published back in the 90s on the investment of MSH in, in intracellular junctions and creating tight junctions. Right. So when you listen to people with celiac disease, that's a problem they have from gluten and TTG, IgA is a good measurement and a biopsy is a good measurement. But you can have TTG, IgA-like problems with anti-gliadin antibodies. And there, the tight junctions are loosened. MSH is deficient, not sealing up the junctions. Gliadin, an 18-amino acid peptide, can be absorbed through the tight junctions, and then an autoimmune problem results. We see the same kind of problem with anti-cardiolipins, especially people with long you know, slender arms and slender faces and long fingers, the models, the basketball players, the volleyball mm-hmm. players of the world. But specifically, those body habituses are associated with HLA and TGF-beta-1 and autoimmunity. They're going to have the gut problems. Now, as far as MSH in the, in the, uh, in the brain, MSH has a lot to do with antidiuretic hormone or copeptin, as it's now called when you want to order the test, mm-hmm. and will affect adversely the ratio, relationships of osmolality and, uh, and NADH. Now, I mentioned earlier about, about ACTH and cortisol. That's a big deal. We, we published one of the slides in the training program, and you'll see it. There's 1,300 patients, and they're basically divided into four, four groups. They all have dysregulation of ACTH and cortisol, either too high for each, too low for each, or one's too high, one's too low. And it's, it's, it's separated. So you can't say that it's cortisol when it's ACTH. It's the relationship. So dysregulation of those pairs. We also see the same problem when people are looking at androgens, because many times people will say, well, my testosterone is low. I'll take some testosterone. What they do, if they have an upregulated aromatase because of deficiency of MSH, uh, they will take that DHEAS or that testosterone, convert it over very quickly to estrone or estradiol. In fact, that's one of the diagnostic tests we use is to give people DHEAS 25 milligrams three times a day for a week and measure baseline estrone, baseline estradiol, baseline DES, and baseline testosterone and see what they like in, in, in a week. If they're aromatizers, the female hormones will go up, male hormones will go down. But then the guy comes back in to see Dr. Joe and says, I got better for three days with my testosterone. Now I'm no better. Give me some more testosterone. Dr. Joe says, here you are. And guess what happens? More estrone, more estradiol. It's crazy. Everything, we, everything we've done is cases versus control. Okay. It's all statistics. And we, we, what we did when we did that diagnostic test for DHEA, look to see what do happen with, it, with, with MSH, what happens with normal MSH. And there are people with normal MSH. We saw that the okay. problems were all low MSH related. That's so fascinating. Um, you also recommend... Do the, test, a... do the experiment. Do the experiment. That's all you got to do. Okay. Well, I can't prescribe, and I'm not a big fan of prescribing hormones, but I, I don't prescribe DHA. Well, I guess I could, but I, I normally don't. But that is interesting. I never thought about that. Iris okay. 2 goes up with glucose. Much, much of protein gluconeogenesis mm-hmm. is coming. Glucose is driven by protein. So your high-protein diets can be high-glucose diets. Yeah. You've got IRS2, then you're going to have problems with metabolic acidosis, this problem of the metabolism, the complications will cause your 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 mind your meat eaters to not not do well. What you can do, or someone you work with can do, is to do a, a variation looking to see for your 
anion gap person, the person I talked to earlier today, an anion gap of 13. A little up, not all that bad. But what will you do is you give them a, a container of blue cola like we used to use for glucose tolerance tests. And you measure comprehensive metabolic profile at baseline with a anion gap at time zero, time at 60 minutes, and time at 120 minutes. You will see these people, when you give them the slug of glucose, they will extend their anion gap at two hours, and it's diagnostic. You know that they are compensated metabolic acidosis patients, but they're going to be at risk for pulmonary hypertension, Treg deficiency, and then also gray matter nuclear atrophy, just from glucola. That is so fascinating. Um, so the and you said the other test was the IRS too. Yeah, don't don't leave home without it. You can't do nutrition this day and age without knowing about glycogen and and Warburg profile. Right, right. Uh, what about the Marcones in our noses? If you've got MSH deficiency, yes, 80% of those patients will have Marcons. Mm. Now, Marcons does most of its damage by its ability to take genetic material from other organisms. It's called horizontal gene transfer. Every microbe does it. And Marcons are especially prolific at breeding with other microbes, whether it's a fungus, which is why antifungals are so bad, right. or it's a bacteria or it's a dinoflagellate. Those DNA pieces can be can be changed. If you get a piece of DNA from an actinobacteria, you will have polycyclic ether toxins, glenomycin, monensin, monogerosin. They're all polycyclic ethers. That's where they come from. That's where Marcon's causes this biggest problem. So if you want to profile Marcon's, is it a trouble or not? Make sure and measure mitoribosomes, large and small. If they're normal, you can forget Marcon's. If a client goes through the whole protocol. If someone is clearing, even with the VIP nasal spray in the end and all their markers start regulating, if they get exposed again to a toxin, do they have to go through that whole process over? Unfortunately, within two days of re-exposure, we call this a relapse patient, you will have recurrence of IRS2 elevation and hypermetabolism. So you are back to square one. No, you will catch it quick enough so that you won't be looking at antigen problems. You won't be having ADH problems. You'll be not worried about, about gliad and antibodies. You'll see it quickly enough that you'll be able to take action uh, and with well call and then skip and quick, quickly to the VIP. So it is the, the smart person who learns their exposures are the big deal. The people that don't get better usually aren't taking their medications right. They're using taking supplements like curcumin that interrupt the VDAC. Bad idea. I see it all the time. And you can't assume a supplement's going to be good for you just because it's being used. But then the other thing is that there is ongoing re-exposure. We had an attorney, 39-year-old, very wealthy attorney from Louisiana, this morning would not get actinotesting done. And yet he's got six gray matter nuclear atrophy. What is his problem, actinos? What is his problem? He's stubborn. I have clients that, you know, fall into all of this right now, and they're very excited to start the, um, the cholesterol main and, and then, (laughs) and then do all of it. And, but they're always worried. So for the rest of my life, do I have to go wear a mask into these mold buildings? How do I know? You just know that when you get on an airplane, airplanes are moldy, all that Mm -hmm. air turnover, they say they're supposed to get at 40,000 feet. Nah, they don't do it. Cost too much money to do it. You know that you're going to get exposed in the hotel when you when you land from the airplane. You know full well when you go to the antique shop, you're going to be exposed to mold. You know when you can smell mold, it's not mold, it's actinobacteria. 
That's right. Interesting. You, you can you know that if you see it, it's probably going to be something bad. But specifically, when you find water intrusion, that's the bottom denominator. And most people who are like me, I've had this illness for 25 years. It's boring. Let's let's go see a, a movie, honey. No, what's on Netflix? Let's go uh, let's go shopping in in, in St. Michael's. No, let's go let's let's go out on the boat uh, in a rowboat. Let's go out on the paddle boat. Let's go out and do something boring without indoor exposure. So can the someone with a haplotype, and obviously certain haplotypes are have a more susceptibility, but can they have a normal immune response if you regulated, you know? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. If if you know it's like poison ivy, you don't get it if you don't touch it. You do, you can't get it by looking at it. Right. But then if you just said that 50% of the indoor buildings are infected. And you breathe the air. That means you went inside the building. What did you do that for? But real life, you have <laughs> to go in the building. So, I mean, is it, I mean, can people take that, um, the Wilco for a preventative measure then? I mean, yeah, absolutely. What? They sure do too. And it works. Oh, okay. And the other thing, training folks to recognize when is a multi-system, multi-symptom illness that develops all at one time over two to three days, SIRS, about 99% of the time. As soon as I learned about your protocol and your research, I already knew the population of my people that I work with that I pro- they most likely fall into it because all of their symptoms, and we didn't even really talk of the 13 clusters and the symptoms like brain fog and um, just feeling unwell and really low energy and just um, sometimes joint pain. And I I knew that they were the ones that were likely going to um, be susceptible to Sears. If, if there was any marker for, to get tested, what would you, and let's say someone doesn't have a lot of money to do testing. What would be the one test? If there is any that you would recommend other than the symptomology, other than the VCS test, what other test would you say you should get that one? Is there even one? There's three answers. The first answer is VCS and the symptoms cost $15 on site. Ours is reproducibly reliable. Careful what you see on the internet. So that's that's one thing. Secondly, TGF-beta-1 is the the pleiotropic multifactorial cytokine. can be pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory. It raises more questions than what what it answers. But the best test of all is Genie. Now, when you say you don't have a lot of money, Genie costs more than, than, than $750. Uh, that's how much it costs. It's very expensive. And I, I don't want you to be thinking about getting that. But the information you get is that you get the physiology, you get the metabolism there, uh, you get the inflammatory stuff with cytokines and coagulation, you get brain injury. It's all in one package. So if you don't want to spend $1,000, spend $700. Okay. And is that accessible to anyone or do you have to go through a doctor or a certified Sears practitioner? It, it is now accessible to anyone. Uh, we have our CLIA application complete so that we, we'd like to have doctors order it to get started. Uh, but at the same time, there are other people that are health-related, such as yourself, who don't have an MD or a DO right. uh, or a nurse practitioner or a PA who can order the test. I'm just going back really quickly to the low amylose diet. So why why do you recommend a low amylose diet for people? Insulin um, is a pro-inflammatory hormone. Okay. If you avoid the foods that turn on insulin, you'll be mm-hmm. on a no amylose diet. So that you need to use uh, one of the pioglitazones back in the old days to lower MMP9 and VEGF. Now we just use omega-3 fish oils. But that's that's where you, if you are eating in amylose-containing foods or amylopectin-containing foods, uh, you, you, you'll you do poorly. 
just as a plug for the website, survivingmold.com, where you can find a ton. There must be a million free pages. Right. Uh, you can read it in the afternoon if you want to, but that's a lot of reading. Uh, Progene DX is where you get where you get teeny, but there is a ton of stuff. The uh, certified physician section on surviving mold is free. Read it. You'll go through the protocol. You'll, you can read it 45 times if you want, but you also have a chance to read what is evidence-based medicine, which is important in its own right. Yeah. I mean, there's, um, there's so much information and it's very, when you first get into this, there's so many letters and alphabets and for the um, lay person that's sick, but I mean, it's very comprehensive and it's something that um, I think people that are not well, and then once they get tested for SIRS, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that is the most powerful thing about this treatment. And and so I'm grateful for all the research you've done for this, because I didn't know what to do with this population that is so sick that their immune system responds to everything. And now you've brought a light to this darkness. And so I thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. And there's more more on the way. One of the things that, that I see on a daily basis is that when you don't have your health, what is the one thing that dominates every single day? How you would like it to be healthy again, how you'd like if you didn't have a tremor again, how you'd like if you didn't need to take prednisone again. Right. And then if, when you start getting your health back, how would you like to have your brain back? How would you like your brain back? We published that in 2017, Fixing Gray Matter Nuclear Atrophy. All this stuff is published and peer-reviewed. But the things that people want, health, thought, ability to love and care, not be in chronic pain every single day. These are basic human needs. I think they're human rights. Right. Some may argue with me, but the real issue is that they are obtainable now. And all you got to do is read. All you got to do is look in the literature. Surviving mold, Progene DX. Be very careful on the internet. Oh, I agree. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, this is just, I know, the beginning and scratching the surface of what all is SIRS, but I think it was so important for you to come on and share with this community that my guess is at least maybe 50% may be suffering from because if they're willing to do a meat only diet, they're obviously not doing well in some aspect. And I would not be surprised if it's the chronic inflammation. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Nice to meet you. And this was enjoyable for me. So I appreciate all your kind concern. Thank you. Take care. I hope that you found this information helpful. I know the discussion was pretty technical, but it's a lot of information that I highly recommend looking into, especially if you are not getting better and you have been working with so many different people. Sometimes it can be a lot more root cause than just a diet, than just an organ imbalance, than just something smaller that practitioners work on on a common day-to-day basis. I hope this gives you another lever to pull to possibly get you to root cause healing. Thanks for joining me today. Make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. 
You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and The Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.